Hey there, folks. Welcome to another episode of the Cracked Podcast. My name is Alex Schmidt, and I'm the head of podcasting here at Cracked. I'm also known as Schmitty the Clam, and I am also, also a stan for Bugs Bunny. Do you guys know what a stan is? A stan? If you don't, listen to more Eminem. Use the website Genius more. The term Stan is from his song Stan, and it means someone who is a diehard fan of an artist no matter what they do. And I think I'm a Stan for Bugs. In most Looney Tunes, they set up Bugs Bunny's antagonist as deserving it. The guy is a jerk to Bugs. Then Bugs says, of course you realize this means war. And there's an element of revenge to blowing up the guy's face and making him fall off cliffs and so on. But once in a while, they don't do that setup. In some cartoons, Bugs Bunny burrows into town, terrorizes a guy, burrows away, and that's it. And when Bugs does that, I like him anyway. I let it go. I turn off my logical side. I throw out my sense of justice and I root for Bugs Bunny to basically be a villain. And that's partly because in the past, our standards for heroes and villains were different. We weren't picky about our rabbit vandals. And that is what we are talking about on this week's episode. The topic is movies where the heroes and villains would be reversed today. And that topic springs from an article of the same name by James Kinnean, Michael Garrowy, and my guest today, Cracked Editor and Writer, Dan Hopper. Me and Dan go way back. He is one of my favorite writers around, and I'm really excited to bring him on the show to talk about everything from the biggest Justin Long movie of all time to the Christmas movie you probably watched a couple weeks ago. And I particularly love the way these villain hero swaps we're going to talk about are motivated by specific changes in our society and our world. The housing bubble, the rise of Airbnb, real estate, telecoms, college tuition, all these tangible things and changes that wreck the movies of yesteryear in really fun ways. We'll also bring in some other villains from outside the article who now seem 100% wonderful. They're just great. For example, speaking of Eminem, the 1990s. I don't know if you remember the 1990s very well. Here's the two key things to know about that decade. One, we expected government to provide us with services and not kill us. Two, Adam Sandler was basically Bugs Bunny. He could do no wrong. He was the king of comedy. And in the 1999 movie Big Daddy, where Adam Sandler's character adopts a child just to impress a girl a little bit, a city social worker tries to intervene because there are social workers and they care. And that social worker gets dunked on throughout the movie by Adam Sandler, who in the movie is a public urinator who teaches an orphan child to do the same. If you look at that movie today in a world where the U.S. government is what it is, it feels d d different. And there's more examples of this kind of movie from here in the episode. So let's get to it. Please sit back or stand vigilantly over your DVD collection, ready to throw out the first movie that disappoints you. I'm, I'm just kidding. You can still like the movies. We're having fun. Anyway, enjoy this episode of the Cracked Podcast with Cracked Zone, Dan Hopper. I'll be back after we wrap up. Talk to you then. We are joined today in the studio by Cracked editor, writer, and old pal of mine, Dan Hopper. Hey, Dan. Hi, Alex. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, glad to have you. Uh, this is uh, this is gonna be a lot of fun. You and two other folks from uh, our workshop at Crack, James Kaneen and Michael Garrowy, wrote an article called Five Movies Where the Heroes and Villains Would Be Reversed Today," which is an amazing premise, especially because you guys go so specific and technical with it. There's like a whole episode in it, that, and also other movies where it's really surprising how they aged. Yeah, yeah. I got the idea. <laughs> Uh, thinking about you've got mail, which I do a lot. <laughs> just, free, just free, free thought. Uh, you've got mail riffing, um, but it's funny because you've got mail is about Meg Ryan has a little indie bookstore in New York, and she's threatened by uh, Fox and Books, which is a mega chain that Tom Hanks's company is opening. It's you know pretty clear analog for like Barnes and Noble slash Borders which at the time was taking over the world and putting out putting every bookstore out of business yeah. and uh i just thought it was funny like if you think back like all of those stores are failing so hard and have been failing so hard for like 15 years <laughs> that like indie bookstores are actually thriving if you go back and rewatch that movie like meg ryan's store would actually be doing awesome and tom hanks would be in like the most dying business like I mean, that store wouldn't even open. It would have closed 15 years ago. And so uh, it's just like, 
so bizarre. It's a complete reverse of, you know, what the movie intended in like not that not that long ago. It's not like it's you know, it was a ninety eight yeah. or it's something. A, yeah, like that. 1998 movie. Folks at home should know. Us internet professionals in general think about the movie You've Got Mail probably four or five times a day. Yeah, definitely. It's just part of our culture and our lexicon. Well, I mean, we use email, <laughs> so how can you use email without thinking? <laughs> every time I get, every time I receive an email, I'm like, just like You've Got Mail, <laughs> just, just like fifteen to twenty times a day. <laughs> like, like the, the Meg Ryan is me. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> I, I say it out loud whenever I get an email. Yeah. You've got a little beer by your desk, like point yourself. You've got mail. Yeah. You, know, like, <laughs> you buddy. Yeah. And, and what you found is exactly right. Like I even just for prepping another episode of this show, I needed to get a book last minute. And yesterday I went to like the one Barnes and Noble left in all of West L.A. Oh, yeah. And I Googled their hours before I went, and there was an article about how they're closing in a couple months. Like, they're, yeah. they're all done for. Yeah. I did some research for the article. I just, I'm just trying to no. make sure my, <laughs> my employers Get know that I actually do some work. <laughs> like, uh, I, I just Googled some stuff. And, uh, well, because the market for indie bookstores now, it's like part of a community. You know, the people who go in, they're regular customers. They want to go to events. They want to, yeah. you know, be recommended things by the clerks and sort of talk to people. It's like more of an event space slash destination shopping. Whereas, you know, the market for Barnes & Noble Borders was, uh, hey, we have every book in the world. At the time, it was like, oh, amazing selection, endless selection, come in and we'll have it. So that market is just completely gone because that's just Amazon. It's like if you want a book, you just Google it and buy it on Amazon. Whereas if you want a community experience, then like you don't go to Barnes and Noble. And so it just completely reversed itself in yeah. the span of whatever, eight years or something. And now there's this, there's this movie where, uh, <laughs> you know, Tom Hanks is the big corporate Goliath, but has no idea that in like five years, it's going to all plummet. <laughs> so. Yeah, it's like if it's like if there was a movie about a guy who's a titan of business in his town because he runs Radio Shacks. Yeah, you know? and it's yeah, like, oh, it's how exactly are we going to beat like. Radio Shack? Yeah. It's so powerful. You yeah, know? just <laughs> someone has a little like indie video store, and then like you know some blockbuster video analog comes in, and it's right. just like yeah, yeah, it's just like this is a blockbuster town now, baby. <laughs> it's just like <laughs> I feel so bad for these characters; <laughs> they're, yeah. they're going to be so screwed and. In eight years. And like if, if it happened now, you know, Tom Hanks would be the anxious one who's like, oh, crap, my store's closing because we can't keep a block long store open <laughs> in, in Manhattan. It's like right. absolutely impossible. So. And yeah, and you're right. Like in the movie, it's called Fox and Books, but it might as well be Schmorders or whatever. And, I, <laughs> and it's very accurate to that time. Like I remember loving going to Borders, and in my Me suburb, too. that was like the option. And then you could go there and and just flip through every book you had an interest in, mm -hmm. and then maybe buy like a muffin or whatever and leave. It was the best. Yeah, it was great. Really good loitering. Uh, yeah. You know, really great. <laughs> how did that business model fail? <laughs> as, like, as I say it, I realized Come in, touch how. every single book in our, like, avenue-long store in the most expensive real estate in the country and uh, don't buy anything. And uh, it'll all work out. It's like yeah. a, It's like a brick-and-mortar, like venture capital app or something. It's just like, it's like, this will all be profitable eventually. Like, trust us. And it's like, oh, whoops. <laughs> we uh, nope. Can't really afford this. Yeah. Well, also, and like you picked out in the article, uh, there's New York Times looked into it and they said that from 2009 to 2016, indie bookstores experienced 30% growth. And that's while giant bookstores are dying and just kind of retail is at least yeah. stagnant or going down just because of the internet. Like it's it's very hard to open a store for mm -hmm. anything except maybe groceries and uh, and indie bookstores are killing it. It's yeah, amazing. I think it's because it's it's not as much filling a practical niche as it is like it's like a destination. It's an experience kind of thing yeah. that, you know, people like going into bookstores and knowing the clerks and whatever. And the store 
the Meg Ryan store in the movie is like awesome. It's like so, I mean, because it's a movie, so it's like so everything's this, like, awesome. Amazing yeah. set. You know, it's like the equivalent of like whenever there's a Halloween episode of like a sitcom and everyone has like perfect costumes. <laughs> just, like, you know, like Phyllis from The Office has some like professional, like, but it's <laughs> right. like that. It's like this unbelievable, like perfect indie store that like now would be in any community and would be thriving and like no one has any need for fox and books. Yeah, the store opening would be written about in newspapers and magazines in the town and like then they'd get some kind of internet feature. It would they would do great. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they would sell vinyl probably. They would have like readings and local yeah. authors would show up and stuff like that and yeah. Remember where vinyl was in 1998 and where it is now? Oh man. What yeah, a thing. that's almost been the exact same thing, right? Yeah. You know, if you want a experience, you go, you know, you go to vinyl and you have your vinyl on display. But like, if you just want to listen to the thing, then, you know, there's Spotify and stuff now. It's like, and I feel like at the time, CDs were the equivalent of that. It's just like, you want the practical, like, you want a big selection and you just want to practically own it. Whereas now it's like... If that's all you want, then you just Spotify. Like, you, there's no need to purchase a CD and put it in your thing. And all things are in a cloud somewhere, or yeah. is brought to you by a drone, and it's whatever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the cloud drone. Yeah, cloud just drone. Yeah, shoot, yeah. beams, <laughs> just shoots like the experience into your brain supersonically. You know, you go to record events and record stores and stuff as more of a experience. It's not like shopping at Barnes & Noble. It's shopping at the indie bookstore. It's, right, let's right. see what I can find. Let's see if I can find some old thing. Oh, this is cool. Like, you know, limited selection. It's kind of like finding it is kind of part of the fun. Yeah, yeah. Well, and also, and somebody might be sitting at home or car or whatever, or whatever you folks do, thinking like, ah, things change all the time. Why would change be interesting? But like, this is a movie. I don't know if people know that you've got mail as an adaptation of the 1940 Jimmy Stewart movie, The Shop Around the Corner, which was adapting a play in 1937. So for like 60 years or more, that premise was durable. It was, it makes sense. Like giant stores crush little stores. That's all it is. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly like around the, uh, well, around the technology that You've Got Mail was celebrating basically, (laughs) like the year after that movie, it started, the (laughs) emails started telling you about Amazon. Immediately, suddenly massive change. The foreshadowing, the Chekhov's internet <laughs> like we've got this great technology in this great store. And that's gonna st- <laughs> it's gonna stay that way forever. Um, yeah, that's that's really interesting because yeah, fifty years before it, it would be the same. It would be big store crushes little store because it's yeah. like the idea of what stores are there to provide has changed in a way. Like yeah, all it's of more a experiential than practical because like you can get anything on the internet instantly. So like. An indie bookstore or like a vinyl shop has more to offer than a megastore, like something like that. Like yeah, selection yeah. isn't really that big of a deal anymore. Yeah, now, because like, cause all that changed from the Jimmy Stewart movie to the Tom Hanks movie is the romantic leads use emails instead of writing letters and the store sells books instead of, and it was like a department store fashion shop kind of thing. And that's it. That's all that changed. And it's set in the U.S. instead of Hungary. But, you know, it's minor. Uh <laughs> Was that set in Hungary? Yeah, it was a Hungarian play. Yeah. Oh, cool. I, yeah. I wasn't aware of that. We were talking also about how kind of cities change, and especially New York. And you also brought up in the article the movie of the musical Rent, uh, which was a musical in 93. And then they took pretty much the whole cast and made it a movie in 2005. But it's kind of amazing how that flips as well. 2005, they really struck while the iron was... The coldest ever it could possibly be. It was like Rent was like such a phenomenon for like a decade. And then they, you know, they made a movie like way later with the original cast. So they're all like, yeah, I don't know, in their late 30s, early 40s or something. And um, oh, and still playing like super young artists. Yeah, still playing young yeah. artists. And then on top of that, it's like, you know, I guess in 1993, in the mid 90s, like the sort of the writing was on the wall for the East Village. I don't know if listeners are as familiar with Manhattan as we are. A couple I, of New Yorkers over here. <laughs> <laughs> well, also, yeah, I know I know. sometimes folks at home do not love to hear a lot about Los Angeles or New York on a podcast. I swear this is totally fascinating New York stuff that's about, like, r- how real estate works worldwide. It's great. Yeah. The East Village <clears throat> was, you know, sort of bohemian, I don't want to say squalor or something, but, like, 
it's it's almost yeah. impossible to remember. Like uh, Manhattan, a lot of parts of Manhattan were very very poor and crappy and crime ridden. And yeah, uh, there's and, a cycle of gentrification that hadn't really hit yet yeah. when they were doing this. And now you know Manhattan, you can't live anywhere. It's phenomenally expensive. Everything you know, an apartment in the East Village to buy would be in the millions of dollars, like easily. And it's been that way for a while. It's certainly since 2005. And so the movie, which takes place in, or the the play, the the Broadway musical, or operetta, I believe, because I don't think yeah. there's any talking in it. Well, because this is also one where it's adapting a much older thing, partly at least. It's sort mm-hmm. of adapting La Boheme, which premiered in 1896. So mm-hmm. this is another century-old idea that is now yeah. silly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, I, it's not like, Totally off base, you know. Obviously, gentrification is a is brings a ton of problems, and the lifestyle that they are celebrating and rent is kind of a thing of the past. Yeah. Uh, but like, it's so bizarre to watch the movie in two thousand five, and it's a bunch of like late thirties people <laughs> who don't want to pay rent in the East Village. They want to like live there for free. Their friend Benny, who marries into a rich family and becomes the evil landlord, who tells them they could live there for free and then rescinds the offer because he wants them to stop a protest of homeless people. You know, in the in the play, it's, you know, he's the money-grubbing, evil, gentrifying villain. And, you know, the homeless people are rising up and he's trying to stifle free speech. And it's, you know, it's a big, you know, us versus them, like bohemian lifestyle versus like the march of progress kind of thing. Right, right. Money, we, ver- money versus art, basically. Yeah, money yeah. versus art. But then you're watching the movie in 2005 and the East Village is already completely gentrified. <laughs> you can't, you know, you can't buy a place in Manhattan at anywhere. And it's a movie about these two artists living in a giant penthouse loft space on Avenue B in like a prime, prime location who don't want to pay rent and then their friend is evil for like offering to like let them live there for free. Obviously, yeah, you don't want to like stifle the free speech of the the local residents, but it's like pretty unreasonable to expect to live for free in like a $2 million penthouse that your friend owns and then he's the villain when he like goes back on it. It's like kind of bizarre. Yeah, he's not he's not a great dude, the landlord guy, but he's not offering some kind of devil's bargain or something. Yeah. It's like a pretty fine offer. And, and it's it, pretty and and just imagine being offered a penthouse suite in the nicest part of wherever you live for free just to not join a protest. There you know, there's a trade-off there. It's not like evil, you know? <laughs> well, he he wants uh he wants them to stop their friends protest. So it's like a little oh, more, yeah, it's a true. little more evil, but like the protest isn't going to do anything. We kind of know that it didn't because yeah. time has passed. You also, you pulled a clip of it and I had not seen Rent in a long, long time. And I remember that the protest was the artist calling on a crowd of people to moo a lot. Yeah. Like make cow noises. Yeah. And that was somehow <laughs> supposed to be like a sick burn on, on the money people. Yeah. And then it starts, <laughs> it starts riots and they're like, you know, we did it. All right. Like we started riots. And it's like, that is not going to stop the East Village from being completely gentrified. Yeah. And I I know probably isn't the right mentality, but just from like a cold practical perspective, like the neighborhood's going to get gentrified anyway. Benny's like, you might as well like let me give you a free apartment and open a studio there. And and it's just so weird that they're like fighting it. And they're like, yay, like we did it. Like we we did this protest. And you're like, well, in 10 years, like everything's going to change anyway, uh, whether it's Benny doing it or a million other people. And like- right. It's hard to like sympathize with the artists who don't want to work or pay rent. That's like the most reasonable explanation. <laughs> I don't. I don't think I'm like some old, like cold, like right. I Republican. don't think I'm a Scrooge. Yeah, for, I'm not like. Well, because and the gentrification you talk about is it's like an unstoppable wave in real life in that area. Like you, you guys found stats from Trulia that said since the early 2000s in the East Village of New York, and we even know the specific apartment they're in as 11th Street and Avenue B, if people know Manhattan. But the land values went from about $250,000 per place to around $1.5 million. So it's six times up. And uh, that's not like a force that you can easily stop with a bunch of mooing. Like you, you, you maybe want to take the <laughs> take deal a lot from of your mo- friend. A lot of mooing. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta up the mooing. <laughs> it's just like, yes, it's happening. It's just like, um, 
then the the other weird aspect of this, this is kind of how it's how the plot has reversed, is a lot of the East Village now, you know, a lot of the bars and restaurants have closed just because it's impo- it's almost impossible to keep even a successful business open. It's yeah. just so expensive yeah. that like a, a lot of it has become you know, at TD Bank and Chase and Dwayne Reed and, you know, which is owned by Walgreens now and stuff like that. And so it's like a lot of that kind of thing and still some bars, but it's like a lot of just bigger sort of yeah. general bars and stuff like that. Not as much like local stuff. Anything squalorous is closed. Uh, that's well, not like, a word. Because like but, super, su- I, I like the word, yeah. uh, like super short version, because we, we both lived in New York and I, I was not particularly wealthy in New York, but when mm-hmm. I was looking for places to yeah. live, I did not bother to look in Manhattan yeah. unless it was the far, far, far yeah, northern same. end of it toward yeah, the Bronx. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Because it was just not going to be an economic possibility. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's very different from how it was even in the, I'd say, 80s or 70s, I've mm-hmm. heard. Yeah, where, or the 90s probably. I think yeah. you probably could have lived in the East Village. Like, Yeah, just the entire island has gotten so rapidly gentrified mm-hmm. that it's like a tidal wave. The idea now of Benny's, he, he, he sings, he wants to open a studio where we can do our work and get paid, trying not to sing it. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but he, he wants to open a, like a state of the art studio. And now in the East village, that would actually be kind of cool. Like, yeah, that would be least, amazing. It would be like more, in the spirit of the artists in Rent than most of what is in the East Village. And I feel like watching Rent now, it's presented as like, the, he wants to open this sterile, you know, commercial space so that you can get paid and sell out. And, <laughs> you know, yeah. and he wants to like squelch the bohemian lifestyle for this like corporate art and stuff like that. And now it's like, if they open like a multimedia studio where everyone could do, you know, art, you know, that would be a progressive step in the East Village, or at least like a more artistic use of the space than what is mostly moving into the East Village now. Now you, I mean, the, the play still gets performed all the time. And I know the play still takes place in the 90s, but it's like a yeah. little weird to watch the dynamics take place when one, you know, it's going to get gentrified anyway. Two, he's offering $1.5, $2.5 million apartment to them for free. Yeah, because you, like, you guys calculated Benny, this landlord guy, is giving up about fifty dollars to $80,000 in, in rent money by giving it to him for a year. Yeah. By, he's <laughs> just like, he's just eating eighty thousand dollars a year, yeah. <laughs> and in, in exchange for opening a thing that that artists in the East Village would welcome, and would also probably be like financially untenable at this point too, because it's so gentrified. Like, oh yeah, no way. Uh, but yeah. like, yeah, if he was willing to take a loss to open an art studio and help out his friends, like, it's hard to see that. As, as a villain, yeah, or at least like a black and white type character. You know, these are the good guys. This is a bad guy. It's like, yeah, he's still against the protest, and that's bizarre. Um, <laughs> yeah. And you, you know, you don't root for him to stifle free speech. But in the end, like, it's hard to have too much sympathy for the people who are offered to live in a penthouse for free, like even any place, like no one lives rent free anywhere. (laughs) Like what, what the hell do these characters want? Like, unless they're incredibly fortunate. Yeah. Yeah, That's not like some like school of hard knocks, (laughs) like you you crazy kids, like I'm against art. It's not that it's just like completely reasonable to expect anyone to pay rent, especially in a penthouse loft in the East village of Manhattan. It's like, yeah, so reasonable. Like seeing the story this way, it almost, it's exactly like I say, it's not a black and white villains, heroes thing. It's almost like a, the wire kind of thing where I'm just learning that systems are complicated. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and like, It's just like, I, like the whole story could be just finding out about economics, you know, like, yeah. it's really interesting. <laughs> That's the last song. It's like, they all come out and hold hands and it's like, systems are complicated. <laughs> the shades of gray. So those folks are, you know, early 20s and just into that stuff. Let's go one step earlier in life. You guys pulled out the movie Accepted in the article, which is from 2006, so not that long ago. And it's about people launching a illegal for-profit college and being the heroes. You know? Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it's kind of funny. It's like a, it's a movie about it's Justin Long and Jonah Hill and a bunch of other people. Yeah, Blake who, Lively. Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Lewis Black becomes the only professor or something. Yeah. <laughs> it's unclear. They like hire him <laughs> as like the principal slash 
lecturer. He just lectures on the quad, and that's like what the school is. Right. And he has, I believe, no qualifications. Yeah. He's just very interesting. He's just a he's a weird guy who yells, <laughs> and he's Lewis Black. He like yeah, barely he's, he's even really play. funny. Yeah, yeah, they, they, like, yeah. I, he might be Lewis Black in the movie. It's like unclear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so they it's all, all these the rejects, all the people who didn't get into every college for a number of reasons, and uh, Justin Long has the idea to start their own school. They they take in all of the unaccepted kids, and kind of the message is like, there's a place for everyone. Like everyone can succeed. Yeah. Like come to South Harmon Institute of Technology. Uh, oh, I'll can, bet that's an innocent acronym. Yeah, no, no time to figure out what it. Stands South for. <laughs> Harmon Institute of Technology. Yeah, there's no time. Let's just move yeah, on. Yeah, let's move on. Um, that takes in the accepted kids, and it's sort of a triumphant story of like everyone finds their place, and everyone can get a college degree. Just come here, and uh, he gives like a rousing speech at the end about. Yeah, if I remember right, he gives a rousing speech about how the college accreditation process is kind of bullshit. And that gets them accredited in the end. Like, it, it works out in the end. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but now, especially these last, whatever, five, ten years, there are so many sort of predatory for-profit colleges that yeah. are not accredited universities that advertise a lot. They really don't have any credentials. They don't help people the way that they claim to, you know, to just kind of, we'll give you some degree or we'll teach you this skill or whatever, something like that. And it's a huge problem because they, they prey on people who, you know, can't afford a regular college but want something and right. will sink a lot of money into some random, I don't know if the University of Phoenix is one of those. I don't know a lot about that one. It seems to be yeah. like the one upstanding one. The rest okay. seem to be... Yeah, a bunch of fake, u whatever. Uh, yeah. and, or the Trump University thing is not that different from Man. that. It's, it's just like you know, purporting to make you a millionaire or like give you some degree. And it's ultimately, you know, gives you a worthless degree or useless skills in exchange for, you know, for oh profit. It's a for-profit college. Yeah. And the characters in Accepted found Trump University. Yeah. Basically. They, they, <laughs> they form a completely unregulated, completely unaccredited university where students are going to pay them. I mean, I assume for profit, maybe they don't take salaries or I don't right. know. They're, show, they're someone, showing up for a college because it has cool vibes. Yeah, and that's so, it. Someone has, but in the end, they're they're not going to be qualified for jobs. They're not. They're going to have a useless degree. I mean, I guess they get the accreditation at the end, but like his whole point of like, you know, the system is meaningless. Like everyone should be able to go to school anywhere and have it be the same. Is that's like a predatory college. It's like... Right, they, it's led they, to a real-life phenomenon. Yeah, they, they inadvertently came up with, like, a pyramid scheme, basically. Yeah. The movie doesn't <laughs> acknowledge it. It's, like, triumphant. <laughs> it's like, everyone is accepted. We did it! Like, Justin Long, hand up, like... No, you like Bernie Madoff, like, all of these <laughs> kids who, like, couldn't get into college, all these, like, probably, like, you know, poor students who just want to learn or like just want to get anywhere so they can get any kind of low-level job in life and are like desperate to hand you their money <laughs> it's like you've take you've inadvertently taken advantage of them it's like never acknowledged and it's celebrated in the movie it's just such a weird backwards thing that if you watch now knowing that those schools exist and do that very very deliberately it's funny to watch like the the gang of scrappy misfits like <laughs> accidentally, like, <laughs> Ponzi scheme, a bunch of, like, really sad, rejected children. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know how much people know about for-profit colleges, but it really is an active phenomenon that, for one thing, it has a whole John Oliver episode, so you know it's bad. You oh, know? yeah, yeah. And then also there's a, a cracked personal experience article called I Teach at a For-Profit College, Five Ridiculous Realities. Uh, it was reported by Evan Simon and the the person doing it did it anonymously because it's not a great system and they didn't want to be like caught exposing a lot of it. In it, they talk about their school having completely untrained professors, uh, their school specifically targeting minorities to try to bring them in. And then they also bring in other research about uh, like places like even DeVry University, which is one of the oldest one of these and one of the most prominent ones. DeVry claimed in ads to have 90% job placement for grads. And then when people looked into it, they found out that DeVry was counting successful job placement as things like getting people jobs as waiters uh, and also <laughs> getting people jobs at Taco Bell. 
cool. working at a Taco Bell. They were like, we placed somebody in a job. We did it. That was a good education. So the, most of these places are being sued or investigated kind of all the time, as far as I can tell. Getting a job getting a job <laughs> on the DeVry intramural softball team. Right, <laughs> like, that right. Counts. Like, <laughs> Counting that, that counts as five jobs. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> it's a really serious, terrible phenomenon that the movie never acknowledges. And it's kind of funny. I mean, that movie... I don't see it on TV that often, right? It's not, it hasn't really. I remember it playing on like, I don't know, Comedy Central. Yeah. This is not to say that there are not issues with the way fully accredited colleges do tuition and do student debt and there's issues there, but there are these completely scammy schools that accepted accidentally lionizes. Mm -hmm. It accidentally makes them like not only good, but like a way to defeat the establishment. Yeah. And also, I mean, even you said like DeVry University sounds, it's deliberately named to sound like kind of a, just sounds like a university. Like Yeah. Like, and it's it's existed before most of these were founded. Most of these were founded pretty recently. Yeah. So it also but, feels like, oh, it's just older. It's probably yeah, it's legit. Yeah, right. But in, it's South Harmon Institute of Technology. It's like given a deliberate, like <laughs> deliberately sort of, you know, vague name that doesn't sound suspicious or anything like it just sounds like right. a school so it it's like a little three... more conscious than they maybe want to let on that they're kind of like misleading oh. everyone it's like oh like deep down they knew oh that's it's, interesting maybe it's, it's like <laughs> whether or not they did it on purpose it's like you know they picked a name that sounds like any because they want it to they want the the scam to not get caught so they like you know they give it a name that sounds like a regular school and probably would fool you know poor children who don't get into you know, right. accredited schools. The, na- like, the name has a place and a subject and the word institute. Yeah. So it sounds pretty good. And you talk yeah. about untrained professors. They literally hire like a raving <laughs> lunatic to like... Right. a mad guy. Yeah, to yeah. like scream on a quad. <laughs> and like there's like, a mo- there's like a montage of like, you know, a bunch of stuff happening and Lewis Black is like, part of it is Lewis Black like ranting on the quad. And each time they cut back to him, there's like more kids around him. There's not even classes. It's just like <laughs> Lewis Black roving around a quad yelling and maybe some kids are near him and that's like what the education is. And that's <laughs> like, school, yeah. Yeah, and you're presumably <laughs> paying for that. It's pretty bizarre how, yeah, the movie never calls itself out. <laughs> when we've been talking, there's a, sort of a related movie that's one of the, the kind of tent poles of this kind of movie, which is Animal House. You know, like Animal House is such a an iconic film of, uh, they're beating the college and they're really... and. Today, when college tuition is so much radically more expensive than it used to be, like in the past, apparently you could work like a side job and pay for college or something like that. Yeah. And now I, I a bit watch that movie and I feel like, oh man, they're really, they're really burning through some tuition. Yeah. Oh boy. Like no, I'm, I, I'm actively <laughs> afraid for them as I watch them have fun. That's, and I love Animal House. I no, just, it's tough. You that's know? Uh, it's similar to the rent thing where it's like, I don't think I'm like so uptight. I'm just right, like, right. I'm like, go to class. Like, what <laughs> Like, what the hell are you doing? I'm like, the famous like 0.0 line. Like, he's failing every single class in college. <laughs> like, how? Yeah, that's, yeah. That's like hard to do, right? <laughs> and then like D-Day, all class is incomplete. And he looks like he's like 40 in that movie. <laughs> yeah, like, right. <laughs> he's like... It's it's unbelievable that D-Day is even enrolled. Yeah. It's amazing. It's like a 40-year-old like. man <laughs> is like paying for college tuition and not has not completed any class. It's just like you do know that you can party and get drunk and go to class. It's not that difficult. It's, Most yeah, it's people workable. do it. Yeah. It's like <laughs> you have like three to five classes a day during the week. You have the whole weekend off. You have all the time oh, yeah. yourself, like... I mean, like, three to five, if that. They're, you know, light days and stuff. And, like, yeah. I mean, I'm not, like, a, some super genius, and I'm not some crazy party animal, but it it's, was not that difficult for me to go out on Friday and Saturday in college and then go to class on Monday. Right. How, these guys suck. <laughs> like, how and, bad are you at school? Why are you even <laughs> at college? If, like... You, just go do something else. Yeah. yeah. Just, like, you're wasting, like, $35,000 to, like... <laughs> to, like, not even get, like, a C in a class in, like, right. probably not that hard of a school. It's not... I'm not sure what school it is in that movie. It's called... Well, because it's called Faber College. It's kind of made up. 
it seems to be a, the kind of school where if you have a degree from there, it's probably pretty impressive. You know, like uh-huh. it's all stone buildings and statues and all the context clues say this would be like a useful degree if you get yeah, it. So and I mean, they just don't show up. Yeah. How did <laughs> but how did they get in? Like, oh, who knows? Like, yeah. Gr- like, fantastic question. Like, actually, Bluto Blutarski is like sitting down with like his <laughs> high school college counselor and like. It's like, he's like, we got to get your verbal up. And he's like retaking the SATs and like padding his resume with like school clubs and stuff. And he's (laughs) in like, he's in like the model UN and like does two sports and stuff and writes like a really meaningful college essay and then gets into Faber and then can't even get a D in one class. (laughs) Like you actually, that's an excellent question. (laughs) And I think like I have a fan theory now. Uh, I don't know if it's fan theory where uh, it's a movie about, there have been studies about standardized tests are a little bit tilted toward white people, just culturally. Like Uh you do a little better if you're a white person. And so it's just a movie about that. Like it's a satire of the SAT and the ACT. Yeah. It's it's gotta (laughs) be right. That's how it reads now. All those guys probably flunked high school, but got 36s on the ACT. So it's like, (laughs) well, they're in, I guess. So where do you, where do you want to go? All right. Yeah. D-Day like sat down and is like filling out bubbles with a number, <laughs> with a number two pencil, you know, really judiciously like doing analogies and like reading comprehension and stuff and like, <laughs> like <laughs> filling out his essay. It's just like I went to the Philippines uh, with uh, Habitat for Humanity. And, you know, it's like D-Day typing out this like very like articulate essay and then gets into college and then just stops going to class. <laughs> like Immediately. Yeah. yeah. For, just totally for U-turn. 30, yeah, whatever, 50 grand a year. Because also Animal House, it picks out one. There, it's one of the few movies I think ever to depict ROTC, that program, because like the Super Square Fraternity, I think Kevin Bacon's character is in yeah. ROTC. And in the military. Niedermeyer. Yeah. Yeah. ROTC, I don't, I've never been through it myself, but from what I've read about it, it is a way to pay for school. Like not everybody gets a scholarship through it, but there is, once you're in it, you can apply and you can get a scholarship. And like, that is gold now, you know, like Mm -hmm. back then, if college was super cheap, uh, it's never been cheap, cheap, but ROTC was just an option. You could also go like wait tables for a summer or two or something and cover Mm -hmm. it. It's the old economy. But now that's like, what a, what a useful resource, you know, like. And then also either they're slightly poorer and need to do ROTC to make up the tuition gap or at the very least, they're, you know, sort of serving their country in some capacity or just like putting a lot of effort into something. Yeah. And they're the stodgy right. villains. <laughs> whereas like they get the, their I believe they get their horse killed. Yeah. The guys <laughs> the guys who get into college and can't even get a D in one class or go to class are the heroes who are like we're supposed to root for. Yeah. It's like the guys doing ROTC are like trying so much harder than you. <laughs> I mean, I guess they're jerks in the movie, but like Right. They are they are assholes. Yeah. But, but it's like just in kind of a normal way, you know? Yeah, they're 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 <laughs> like trying to graduate college and have the experience and not waste their parents fifty thousand dollars a year or rack up $200,000 worth of debt and not even have a degree or part of a degree, right. which is where those other guys are headed, <laughs> even though Blutarski becomes a senator, as we all know. so That's true. It does work out in the end. Yeah. Because who doesn't love members of Congress? They're always great. Yeah. <laughs> we didn't even talk about any of the sexual politics of that <laughs> Oh, right. It's like there's so— There's also all kinds of yeah, assault and, and peeping Tom again. Yeah, it's very it's bad. Like, it's yeah. like that's almost like a given in, oh, yeah. in terms of like how poorly the movie has aged. There's a whole joke scene where— it's like, should I have sex with this passed out 15 year old? That's like a joke in the movie. Right. Um, well, they even it's like they we, even like judge uh, Donald Sutherland's professor for having a relationship with a student just because he's taking her from the protagonist. Yeah. Like, not because that's weird. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, <laughs> it's like, uh, but. And then, yeah, and then all the peeping stuff. But like, it's like we we didn't even touch on that. It's like yeah, that's, that's like a whole a, other. It's like that's like a, such a given in so many in like a hundred movies that like we're even yeah. like focusing on just <laughs> especially college comedies like like Revenge of the Nerds is just like oh, a yeah. weird. I'd <laughs> yeah, he triumphantly rapes <laughs> the what else popular girl. Yeah. Like that's like the the like comeuppance. It's like oh, yeah, so that's did, a whole he thing. did it. Yeah. It's yeah, it's so it's really really hard to watch. 
Well, uh, and also sticking to economic stuff, you guys also in that article picked out the movie It's a Wonderful Life, 1946. Also, this is going to come out right around the holidays. Mary, It's a Wonderful Life, Miss Everybody. It's the movie of the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's also a movie that (laughs) is strange now because of how house prices and renting works. Well, we went through a horrible crisis a few years ago, if people remember. Mm. The entire uh, economy collapsed. I'm not. I'm certainly not an economics expert. I'm an expert on <laughs> yeah. nitpicking 90s movies. I'm not an expert well, on there, yeah. subprime mortgages. There was a, because of subprime mortgages, there was a recession that only seems fine compared to the Great Depression. Yeah. <laughs> it that, only seems fine because there weren't bread lines most places. That was <laughs> entirely fueled by... Uh, rampant speculation by people lending money to homeowners who couldn't afford mortgages. And then it was like compounded by the stock market sort of betting on that to succeed, that kind of thing. It's like an exponential. That's my general understanding of it. And It's a Wonderful Life is a movie about the evil Mr. Potter who does not want to lend money to people who cannot pay back. And the heroic George Bailey right. is like, no, like, we, we can't be, like, miserly about this. Like, money for everyone. Like, everyone gets their loans. And it's, like, a happy, like, heartwarming message. It's not that unreasonable for, like, the boss to not want to give money to people who can't afford to pay it back. And we've seen, like, the repercussions of when that goes bad, how bad it goes for everyone it's like everyone loses out. It's not this like miserly right. guy who doesn't, you know, who's like trying to ruin Christmas for everyone. I mean, I guess he sucks. He's like an asshole in the movie, but like it's not that unreasonable of a business practice. And like the downside of like rampantly giving <laughs> mo- loans to everyone, like with no checks and balances, is that the entire system collapses and we've seen what happens there. And it's like funny that this movie is like, that is the heroic aspect. You know, running a functional business is like the evil miserly way to do things. Yeah, I'm realizing it's probably the first movie I ever saw that not only expressed the idea, but was built around the idea of mortgages and yeah. just like how a mortgage works. Like, I feel like it's the first introduction of the concept of a mortgage for millions of Americans is this movie. <laughs> And it is a movie where the hero does mean well, the villain does mean ill, uh, the villain like steals money a bit and stuff. But the basic business practice that they're each trying to do, George Bailey, Jimmy Stewart, again, he's uh, on this podcast all the time. Jimmy Stewart like is making a mistake based on the economics that we have today. It's not it's not a great idea. It is kind of funny to put it that way, to like think of someone pitching the movie as like, I've got one word for you mortgages <laughs> it's like that's a hit movie baby that's, that was movie execs that, in the 40s is he austin powers yeah yeah austin powers was based on the movie executive who greenlit it's a wonderful life oh that's amazing yeah it's uh it, yeah i, I it, love it, it just it's like good. imagine yeah. like pitching that now it's like <laughs> yeah, it's sort of it, like so people would be like, oh, so you want to make the big short, but like the reverse of the big short? No, <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> yeah, and even the big short, I remember people blasting it because like they over explain things. Oh, um, sure. Yeah. yeah, I actually didn't see that movie, but I remember people being like, it treats you like an idiot. And like, I kind of wouldn't mind if like a if like a financial movie like really, really explained like what was yeah. going on. It's like I've, I've seen it and I like that aspect. They were very fun about it. Mm-hmm. And it's also it's such a naughty just topic like it's there's a lot to it like the sub I feel like part of why people don't think about that mortgage crisis so much today is because it's just complicated it's or at least it's more complicated than like a war or a natural disaster yeah, for or sure. something it's also not like tangible at all right and like, if it you didn't know? happen to you it's hard to like think through yeah, yeah. and even even like if it did ha- it's all like these bizarre paper transactions and stuff years ago back when like netflix first came out and everyone was watching every documentary that like enron documentary came out yeah like the smartest guys in the room yeah yeah and they're like here's what they did wrong and even after like two hours of it i'm like i still don't really understand it <laughs> but they did pillage money from a lot of people like i kind of man i kind of got it but it's not like you know, it's not the same as like holding a gun to someone and taking all the cash out of their wallet. It's like yeah, we'll we'll also footnote what Enron is for those of you who are like teens because <laughs> it, it was a little while ago now. It's crazy. Yeah. Well, and also there's also a, a kind of basic element of what 
George Bailey and Mr. Potter want to do, which is that George wants people to take loans for houses that they can't afford. And then Mr. Potter wants people to rent places. And I think the movie makes that like rental scheme feel like a slumlord kind of thing. And maybe in that specific town it is, you know, but renting is, well, especially to me, because I'm a city type right now, uh, renting is more and more common in the country. It's just a thing that's happening more and more. They reported on a few different sites that 2017 is the highest percentage of people renting rather than owning homes that we've had in 50 years. It's Mm -hmm. all the way up to 36.6% of people are renting, which is a substantial chunk of the country. Like, it's not like all those people are in dire situations. A lot of them, it's just where they're at, you know? Yeah. You know, or if there's a concentration of wealth at the top, people can own... So, you know, a small percentage of people can own multiple houses and oh, yeah, people have to too. rent that, you know, people have to rent those properties or something. It's not, yeah. you know, we're not in the same like marketplace as like that 1%, like that kind of thing. But also like there's another compounding problem if I, I know in, in a couple different communities in the country, this is not a, it <laughs> sounds like a name drop. My brother lives in Hawaii, uh, which is yeah. very, it's very, very cool. Uh, but a lot of people there buy houses they can't really afford. It's very, very expensive to live there. Yeah, and it's some supposed t- to be, yeah. And some people buy houses they can't afford with the knowledge that they can rent part of it in like an Airbnb type thing. Oh, or sure. like, you know, just kind of make the downstairs floor a rental property in areas that aren't necessarily zoned for that. And that's happening worldwide. Yeah. Uh, at least the illegal Airbnb move. Yeah, 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 yeah. You can only afford buying this thing knowing that you can get semi-illegal income to supplement it. <laughs> yeah. And so that is like, that messes up the community because like you, you double the amount of people there and there's all these part-time people who aren't part of the community like coming in and out. But then also that inflates the prices more because it's like, oh, now I can afford that if I know that I have this like other money coming in or something. And if everyone does that, it's like messing up the, you know, the prices in this residential area. And like the Takeaway there is like, just rent. If you can't afford to buy, like rent somewhere. Like I know it's, there's a lot of, you know, you want to own, it's like better financially long-term, but like, like you said, maybe that community is different and Mr. Potter has some like scheme in mind. It really stigmatizes the idea of like renting if you can't afford buying is like bad. And and it's like a way that a lot of people are functioning right now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I have lived in New York and now I live in LA. I have, I've rented for 15 years and yeah, I've rented not, forever. Yeah. I'm probably not buying anytime soon. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, bringing up hotels and things. Another movie that has sort of flipped lately is Home Alone 2. Oh, <laughs> and also happy 25th anniversary of Home Alone 2 made in 1992. What a thing. Cool. Every, everyone eat your piece of cake uh, celebrating the anniversary of the film. One of the many Donald Trump cameos in movies that boy, oh boy. has aged weirdly now. Yeah, what a what a charming thing that wasn't. But this is a specifically one, and it comes up in another correct article called Five Movie Villains Who Were Completely Right the Whole Time by Nathan Wadowski. And he specifically picks out the concierge at the hotel that Kevin McAllister, if you haven't seen the movie, he's... Lost in New York. And so he's like uh, shacked up at the Plaza Hotel I, I in New York that. City. I read that he is lost in New York. On, yeah, on in the, the subtitle. On, on the poster. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so he's a kid with basically stolen credit cards pitched like uh, just making a situation work in a hotel that uh, he shouldn't be doing that. He should be back with his family. Like it's something that someone should be paying attention to. And Tim Curry's character, who's the concierge at the hotel, Mr. Hector, is like aggressively investigating what's going on with this kid who weirdly has a bunch of credit cards and a fancy hotel room in Manhattan. And we're supposed to hate Tim Curry, the concierge, for this. Yeah. It's uh, <laughs> both of the Home Alone movies, I, I, which I love. Oh, sure. You know, yeah, they're, they're fantastic. You're just like, get in touch with your family. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, bo- like, seriously, both of them. I know that's like such a simple observation, but like the whole time you're yeah. watching it, it's like he does all these elaborate things to like – yeah. Avoid, and then the second one, everything is like times a million. Right. He's in the shower and has like, he rigs like a thing. So the clown, he has like a fake clown with like, he rigs its arms so it looks like it's dancing in the shower. <laughs> when like Tim Curry comes in, there's like a shadow of like the thing dancing. And then he uses like the talk boy to like, to say like, get out of here and like a deep voice <laughs> or something. It's like, 
have him help you contact your mom and right. have you not die. Like what? Yeah, like, <laughs> like even even in the landline phone era, it's not that hard to get in touch with your parents. No, you know what I mean. Not. Like just call them. <laughs> yeah, like call the authorities and be like, they vacation to this city. We need to start the process. Yeah, of not, finding them. like not only not he, not only does he not call him, but he actively. <laughs> avoids being tracked in any yeah. form <laughs> as though like, you know, Tim Curry is just going to be like, you're out on the street kid and throw him in a dumpster or something. It's like, he'll try to contact his parents, like, or the police, like you're in a suite in the plaza on a stolen credit card or you lose and you're in a dumpster. What was your life going to be if you hadn't gotten lost? Just get right. back with your family. Like you shouldn't be in this suite. Yeah. Well, and, and to me, like it really jumps out in this era, because even as recently as the early 2000s, hotels were your option to stay a place, pretty much, unless you knew somebody. And now we have all these services like Airbnb, which have a lot of, there's a lot of problems with them and a lot of issues. They're not great. And so it's really weird to be like, darn this hotel employee who only exists to help me out a convenience that is kind of rare now. Yeah. Uh, darn them. <laughs> Who is you like know? really going out of his way for the well-being of a child, like using right. it. <laughs> and he's like, <laughs> just kind of looks a little like an asshole. So you just hate him. Like, <laughs> it's just like, you know, he's all hotel-y and he's like, oh, so yeah. you're like, Ooh, I hate this guy immediately. Yeah. He doesn't even, he just has like a British accent. Yeah. That's like his biggest crime. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hmm, hotel, I'm hotel guy. He's like, oh, I hope he, I hope he gets his comeuppance <laughs> in the end. I hope he gets something dumped on him in the end right. and <laughs> ruins his tuxedo or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> like, for showing up to work and working very hard for probably not a lot of money. Yeah, to protect a child. At uh, the, the at worst the, at the plaza where they're during Christmas where there's probably twelve hundred other guests and he's like so yeah. so busy and still like. Really going out of his way to make sure this child doesn't die or like he could he could be abducted. He could be part of some weird, I don't know, sex crime or something. Yeah. What the hell does he know? Like there's just a kid <laughs> in the hotel with no parents around who has like a really fishy story and is like a bad liar. Yeah. And then that's not even counting like the, he doesn't even know there's two burglars specifically trying to murder him <laughs> for putting him in jail. They came. They oh were, right, I forgot. They, in the first, <laughs> in the first movie, they were one second away from biting his fingers off, like yes. Joe Pesci's. <laughs> they yeah, like yeah. they're about to graduate from burglarizing houses to like mutilating a child. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know how people how well people remember Home Alone one and two, but that all happens in the first Home Alone. Like Joe Pesci has Macaulay Culkin like pinned against the thing, I think. Yeah, and he, he like he hangs tries to finger torture him by biting his fingers he, off. Yeah, he, he doesn't get to, but he holds a. He, like, they finally catch him, and he like hangs him on a hanger. Yeah, and then he's like, ah, finally, I'm gonna bite your fingers off one by one, and he's like. <laughs> Moving towards his finger with his like mouth open, and then the the next door the creepy neighbor hits him with a shovel and knocks him out and saves the day. Man, uh, if the guy didn't show up, like, was Joe Pesci just bluffing and was just scaring the kid, or was he gonna literally bite his fingers off? Right. And even if he wasn't, they spend the entire second movie specifically trying to like kill Kevin <laughs> like yeah, they're, they're trying to yeah. knock off a toy store on Christmas they know that like it's like a big score but they also like they really have a vendetta against Kevin specifically and it's funny because like you know their motivation is to rob houses and get money but then they're just they have no qualms about graduating to child murder, child murder. Or, yeah like, no problem they're just like oh well this kid kind of this kid put <laughs> feathers on me let's murder him now <laughs> it's just like the difference between two years in jail and like life in prison and like being you know yeah. a prison goat like forever like just no no moral like quandary <laughs> at all in these like the wet bandits, the wet bandits. Yeah. slash murderers <laughs> like <laughs> they're so whimsical and then suddenly murderous yeah right <laughs> There are certain modern reasons that the, the Home Alone movies are weird now, but there are also just reasons they have always been weird. One of them that also should have been weird in 92 and is now tied to an issue that's even more of a hot button than ever is in both movies, but especially Home Alone 2 where he's doing it in a hotel rather than his family home, Kevin convinces 
people in Home Alone 2, it's this poor concierge. He uses that like old black and white gangster movie where the yeah. guy has a Tommy gun. He uses it to convince them that there's a gangster firing a bunch of bullets. Yeah. <laughs> which means he's like convincing hotel staff that there's an active shooter yeah. in the building. And, <laughs> and it's response hilarious. response is to go away and leave him alone. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. The movie also is kind of bizarre too. It's like... It's like this goofy, old-timey movie. I think it was based on, it's like a parody of some existing movie. Like, I forget. Yeah, it's, it's, it seems it's like, like a, Angels Have Dirty Faces or something. An, uh, angels with Filthy Souls. Oh, sorry. Yeah, and it, it feels like a, I don't know exactly what they're after, but like an Edward G. Robinson or James Cagney kind of gangster movie. Like the original, original Scarface it's, it's in black and white times. It, it was based on some some existing movie with a similar title, I, for, I think. But they, yeah, probably. But it's fake, and they, like, filmed it for the movie. But when you go back and rewatch it, it's a PG kids movie that involves a black-and-white movie of a guy Tommy-gunning a woman to death. It's, <laughs> yeah. like, a little weird. Like, right, for, like, cheating on him with a bunch of people. Yeah. In Home Alone 2, Kevin plays the audio of the guy being like, and you slept with this guy, and that guy, and this other guy. And then there's, like, a gay panic joke of one of the names he says is Cliff, and it lines up with one of Tim Curry's co-workers who is named Cliff, and you see his name tag, and he's like, yeah. no, I didn't touch a man. <laughs> you know, like, so there, there's, all, <laughs> there's so many layers to this thing. I didn't have sex with the active shit. Shooter, like, <laughs> <laughs> like, right, like way more that. concerned by that. Yeah. <laughs> In both cases, how stupid are you that like you can't tell a gunshot on TV? But oh but, well, but, yeah, yeah. But like, whatever. That's you know, that's just movie goofiness. <laughs> but like, say you do think it's a real gunshot. Like, what did they? Th they like run away, and then they're just like, woo. Right. We're safe. I guess move on. Right. Yeah. No Don't one like... no one bother that guy. <laughs> just like yeah. he's just still in the room with like a with like a machine gun just indiscriminately firing it sometimes like yeah they're they're not like oh my god call the police immediately this is like right because in real life especially today they wouldn't just lock down the hotel they would lock down manhattan it would be the whole city yeah would kevin be would be trending on twitter in like two seconds <laughs> yeah just be like pray for the plaza like yeah yeah <laughs> But it's goofy. It's a wacky, fun scene. Right. right? It's all, ah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, it is also like, I, I know a lot of movies do this, but Home Alone 2 is like, it's every beat from the first movie, like multiplied by 10. It's just yeah. kind of funny that they're just like. Especially him having a VHS of the same old black and white movie that no child would enjoy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, his parents are away and it's like, oh, finally a chance to do what I've always wanted. Watch a black and white <laughs> Jimmy Cagney movie. <laughs> like, right. like, would be so boring to a child. <laughs> like, they never let me watch this, like, Tommy Gun movie. Now I can see it. Like, oh, this is great. I know guns are very dark. Uh, I want to pick out one other movie, which is X-Men, like the original year 2000 X-Men, and also kind of the whole rest of the series. But there's, in the original one, a guy named Senator, Senator Robert Kelly who is pushing for mutant registration. He wants all of the mutants to be in some kind of database and registered. And coming off of our present era of gun violence where it's like, hey, let's sacrifice a little civil liberties to have less hails of bullets in the country – I'm sort of in favor of the mutant registration thing. It's, I know it's an allegory for very important civil rights things that I believe in, but also in the case of people who's who have brain powers and can like melt other people's brains with them, maybe gun control for that, you know? Yeah. No, it's uh, what the, the first X-Men starts with like a Holocaust allegory, right? And right. It's like right. him and like, Eastern Europe. Yeah. And, uh, and all that's deeply important and yeah, very good. But it is. But it's, <laughs> but it's like, you know, oh, like they branded people then and now they're branding the mutants. And it's like a little different when it's scapegoating an entire ethnicity versus being like, hey, there are practical concerns to the guy who can make all metal shoot people and right. might have villainous intentions <laughs> or like the teleporting mutant who comes one second away from killing the president. Yeah, really. The place where the senator is coming from is not necessarily a place of scaremongering or bigotry. It's like, hey, let's like be a little careful with the the people who can create the apocalypse in like with a snap of their fingers. Like, 
Yeah, because there's a there's a cracked article, Nine Famous Movie Villains Who Were Right All Along by Cesare Jan Struzowitz, and he points out that in X2, the sequel to X-Men, there's like an arms race of whether Professor X's brain powers and Cerebro will be used to just kill all mutants or to kill all other people. And yeah. it's like a near miss of a mutant killing everyone on Earth. Yeah. And in that situation, it's like a little different from the prejudice and and uh, genocides that X-Men's a metaphor for. Yeah, it's like, no, we should maybe maybe like keep an eye on this at least, like at least have them have a license, you know? <laughs> yeah, like if a private citizen was developing a nuclear weapon, right. you wouldn't be like... Oh, that's, you know, that's their, their liberty or something, you know, like, right. even uh, like the most ardent, like, gun rights advocate would be like, hey, maybe let's, like, keep, <laughs> keep an eye on, like, people who have the power to literally kill everyone in the world, and we can't yeah. stop it, and they could have any whims that might set them off to do that. Also, it's kind of funny, Nightcrawler in the second movie, he, like, almost kills the president. And, like, puts, like, the mutant freedom now or something like that. It just, like, completely proves why the registry is, like, not a yeah. bad idea. He, yeah. like, almost <laughs> kills all of their security and teleports his way into, like, the White House and comes a second away from stabbing the president to death. No one's going to see that and be like, oh, yeah, mutant freedom now. Like, yeah, I, I agree with him. They're going to be like, oh, my God. Two more movies to look at. One is... Basically all recent superhero movies, uh, basically everything. In particular, I'm thinking of The Avengers because uh, it's been tabulated by a few sites on the internet. Uh, Hollywood Reporter, chiefly, they did an estimate of in The Avengers, when the aliens attack New York and the Avengers fight them, how much damage is caused. And they think it's about $160 billion in damage. Oh, man. And I, I think basically all recent superhero movies, except the, except for maybe the very latest Marvel movies, like I really enjoyed the new Spider-Man and, and the third Thor because they were mostly weird and like very silly a lot uh -huh. of the time and very small scale. But previous to that, basically every superhero movie ended in a major city getting leveled and I think that's something that, like, we are already past. Like, even as they were making it, we were kind of like, I don't know. This is very yeah. terror attacky. Let's move on from this. <laughs> yeah. I th uh, the Transformers movies, if anyone saw them, are also kind of the same way. It's just oh, like, yeah. there goes Chicago. Like, it's... Truly, they yeah. blow up Chicago. <laughs> yeah. In Transformers 3, uh, they level Chicago. And then in Transformers 4, it's rebuilt and they do it again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I really don't appreciate <sighs> it. Done. <laughs> as a person from around Chicago. I'm not into it man. it's like a cartoon or something he like you know the he like <laughs> hangs up a paint like everything's rebuilt and then they do like one last like little touch he like he like like <laughs> right, the, right. the mayor like hangs up a hangs up like a painting or something and he's like ah rebuilt and then blow all blows up like one second later <laughs> um the end of avengers it's like cool that everyone didn't die but like the fallout of that is going to be Humanity is, will be changed so irreparably in every possible way. It's like the most scarring terror attack imaginable. And yeah. then rebuilding the city will be impossible. Not just the, the legwork of doing it, but it's like you'll have 8 million companies like vying for the bids and then everyone will, everyone will fight over how to use the land. Let's build this here. So, you know, they won't just rebuild everything like pro bono. Like Manhattan is going to be in this purgatory of half destroyed probably forever yeah because it well in, in spider-man homecoming and also in dc with the new justice league movie there's a lot of it set in people like rebuilding these cities have been destroyed because i think they after the fact mm -hmm. were like oh yeah we we shouldn't make movies about that all the time it's kind of yeah. sad and gross and weird the newspaper the next day wouldn't be like Aliens defeated, you know, Loki repelled. It would be like, right. holy shit. <laughs> if there is a the whole paper printed. The whole city yeah. was destroyed and this is going to change life forever. <laughs> and also aliens are real. And, you know, yeah. it's just like. The headline of like, the paper should be like, can you believe our building where we make this paper survived? Like yeah. they leveled so much <laughs> of the city. Oh, my God. And then also one other movie that I think is worth looking at in kind of a time paradox sort of way is Jaws. Because uh, Jaws is fantastic. And yeah, it's really great. great. There was a phenomenon from 1975 when it came out where everyone was suddenly afraid of sharks. And if you actually look at the statistics, sharks are not that much of a killer. And also mm -hmm. humans kill way more of them. Like uh, The Guardian reported in 2013 that there are about 100 million shark deaths worldwide a year. 
And then they reported that in 2015, there were 72 shark attacks on humans that resulted in three deaths. We're beating them. We're winning. We're winning the war viciously. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that's something to celebrate. It, I, well, I, I no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> and it's like it's a phenomenon that's Jaws driven. And so now that makes me look back on Jaws and think like, oh, it's sort of sad that there's like the shark fear mongering there, which I only know about because of Jaws. You know, like yeah. it's a it's a real Ouroboros. Yeah. Thing. I mean, it is also an animal. It's a little weird that it's like evil. Yeah. In the movie, it's like not it's not acting any differently than animals act. Really, I mean, it's like more killer than a shark yeah. would ever be. It's, it's just, just a like, lot tougher. It's just like, yeah. you know, it like eats that dude on the little boat and just keeps on going. Like, yeah. you know, it's just like this <laughs> unstoppable, insatiable killing machine. But still, it's like, it, it is weird, the psychology of like ascribing evil to an animal it, it's a great movie, but it's not like Jaws is like the villain and it's like, oh, I'm going to destroy the town. And they're like, we got to, you know, it's like <laughs> they cut. There's a contentious no. editing moment where they're like, we got to cut this line where Jaws talks. <laughs> we <laughs> we got to cut his speech. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ugh. Where uh, Roy Scheider goes to lo- Jaws's lair, and Jaws like has his back turned with like a swivel chair, and he's like, <laughs> tell, he's like, look out there, tell me what you see. <laughs> uh, Don't someone... you see? This is progress. This is this is what? <laughs> like, like what the hell? Jaws has like a weird motivation. <laughs> Just, yeah. If I can ask one thing of our audience, please Photoshop Jaws into like Dr. No or something, yeah. <laughs> being, a, being a Bond villain. I, I need it right now. <laughs> Perhaps I misjudged you, Brody. I was hoping you would join me. <laughs> I believe we have nothing further to discuss here. <laughs> he snaps his fingers and two like sharks come out and grab him. <laughs> it's like... It's a shark villain, so then his his animals that attack people are just humans in yeah. a vat, like swimming around. Just you know? <laughs> goggles and like a swimming cap. <laughs> Folks, that is the episode for this week. My thanks to my old buddy, Dan Hopper. That was a really good time. And let's go into our footnotes, because this week we're linking off to Dan and Company's article that sparked this. Five movies where the heroes and villains would be reversed today. We're also linking off to a lot more cracked articles and world changes that'll blow your mind. In particular, I want to call out myself a little bit, a little selfish, but please, I did a video for this site all about Airbnb and how Airbnb is raising everyone's rent on earth through what they do. If you want to vibe out to some John Oliver style stuff, hit the link and hit play. I'm also linking off to one of my favorite cracked videos ever by Adam Ganser, because I talked about Bugs Bunny so much at the top of the show. This video makes the argument that Bugs Bunny is a secret trans icon. Adam and the team are a little bit kidding when they say that, and a lot fascinating. It's really great. And last but not least of the footnotes, we are linking off to tickets to see us live, because we're back at LA's UCB Sunset Theater this Saturday. That's right, January 13th, 7 p.m., we're doing a live episode about the funniest real pranks, jokes, and slapstick comedy that happened in history, in actual life. From holy texts that contain dirty pictures to Vikings graffitiing the Hagia Sophia, there's a lot of things that we're going to dig into, and it's going to be a good time. Please join a panel of me, Caitlin Gill, Christine Medrano, and Blake Wexler at UCB Sunset on Saturday. We usually run out of tickets for these. There should still be some left if you're listening right now at sunset.ucbtheater. That's theater with an R-E dot com. So jump on them. And as far as this episode goes that you just heard, our theme music is Chicago Falcon by the Budos Band. You can hear them on Daptone Records. Our episode was engineered by Ryan Connor and edited by Chris Souza. If you love this episode, that's great. If you hated it, let me know about it on social media. That's right, social media. A big, big running list of who the heroes and villains are every day. You can find me on Twitter under the name at Alex Schmitty. I'm also on the wider internet at my website, alexschmitty.com. And we will be back next week with more Cracked Podcasts. So how about that? Talk to you then. This has been an Earwolf production. Executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Chris Bannon, and Colin Anderson. 
For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com.